The Association of Mature American Citizens is an organization dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending our freedoms and securing our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, entertainment, and special insurance rates. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience in our quest for conservative principles. Sign up now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Victor. And for a limited time, get a free gift membership for someone who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference with AMAC. Join today at AMAC.US slash Victor and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is our Friday News Roundup, and we're going to be looking at campaign questions. Fannie Willis's Paramore's records are, the divorce records are released, and Supreme Court rulings, and then we're going to turn to the Middle East. So say, stay with us, and we'll be right back. Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience, that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzlestick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. I would like to remind everybody, Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He can be found at his website, victorhanson.com. And you can join us for $5 a month or $50 a year. And there's lots of reading material that is not available unless you do have a subscription. The website is called The Blade of Perseus. So please come join us. Victor, lots of news and lots of campaign news. I had a couple of questions. Uh, we are today recording while the New Hampshire 
primary is going on, so we'll probably have to talk about that on the Saturday show. But I was wondering, so... Oh, wait, wait, had, wait, 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 wait. You didn't ask me about my echo. <laughs> I was hoping close. to avoid that question. <laughs> I'm getting close. They said they're going to buy it back. And they gave me a little coupon for my six months of non-use. So I'm buying a 5.7 Hemi if and when I'm going to get my Echo Diesel money. But that's we're into month two, yeah. finishing month two almost. So, uh, and yeah. I love my Echo Diesel. You know what? I got it back in my shop. It's sitting in the garage. I'm not going to touch it because it looks beautiful. It's all cleaned and waxed, and it ran beautifully after being in the shop for six months. And I know that if I drive it one mile, something could happen. Okay, wait a second, though. You wouldn't be stupid enough to buy another Dodge Ram before yes. you got the money yes, for the I'm lemon Dodge Ram. Do That's what I'm doing. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I haven't had a pickup for six months. It's a long story, but yeah. it's, it's, when you look at the whole thing... You're not going to believe how much money I lost. Yeah. It's um, a love-hate story. I know. And I, and I look at that beautiful Echo Diesel, and I drove it home from the shop, and it ran like a top. It, it, the little indicator said 31 miles to the gallon down Mountain View Avenue. It was just humming. And I thought, wait a minute. Maybe, just, maybe it's fixed, and we'll just call it six months lost. And no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I lost six months, and um, so they're going to buy it back. I'm going to lose money, but I'm going to buy a gasoline tried and true Hemi engine, yeah. which I think is going to be out of production the next year. Yeah. Well, we can talk about the um, New Hampshire primaries tomorrow, but um, I wanted to ask you a couple of things that since Don Ron DeSantis Kemp has decided to get out of the race. Um, I was wondering if you could give us an appraisal of what happened to the DeSantis campaign. And then the second thing is, I'm hearing floated maybe vice president for DeSantis, maybe for Haley. And I was wondering what you thought about that. That's a, that is a Gordian knot. And I don't want to cut it. But um, on DeSantis... I think what happened was he won that midterm in 2022 with over a million votes, and he carried all of these um, blue counties. And he actually, partly because of his good governance, partly because of the influx of people from blue states, he, he under his directorship, Florida is a red state. It voted overwhelmingly for Trump, so he did. He was just soaring, and that was coupled with or dovetailed with the nadir of the Trump. He was coming off the January sixth, so there was two issues here: one he had no control over, and one I think he did. And the first one he had no control. Nobody in their right mind thought after that August, uh, you know, that August twenty two raid on Donald Trump's home that they did go beyond that. That was so outrageous that never taken a bureaucratic dispute and elevated it to a criminal SWAT team matter, and they did. And Trump got a little bit. And then DeSantis declared at his zenith, he waited maybe a little bit too long, but he, he de did declare at his zenith and Trump's nadir. And then what happened? They started filing these indictments. And when you have Fannie Willis and Jack Smith and Latita James and Alvin Bragg, and you looked at them very carefully, and you think Alvin Bragg is trying to make Stormy Daniels' uh, non-disclosure into campaign finance? You should go look at Hillary. She hired a foreign national to destroy her opponent, paid, paid him through three fire, uh, paywalls to hide it. And then we had Latita James for the first time in history. A New York real estate person is being prosecuted for overvaluing his assets on a loan that he performed very well and made the bank interest profit on, and the bank had no complaints. And then you look at Jack Smith when he has a parallel. The DOJ is appointing him as a special prosecutor to go after Donald Trump for taking out classified documents when the administration that appointed him has Joe Biden, who's been doing it for 15 years, and putting it in his garage. And so that was... 
very questionable. And then you've got this Fannie Willis, no comment on Fannie Willis. She's just imploded in the worst imaginable fashion. But my point is each time they did this, it was so outrageous that Trump got empathy. And they said, my God. And then the mugshot, remember the mugshot, Fannie Willis's mugshot? She thought that was so cute that, and then all of a sudden, a lot of marginalized, quote unquote, people said, I have a mugshot too. <laughs> That's neat. That's cool. That's the man, man. That man's doing that to him too. I like him. I hope they let prisoners vote. <laughs> I don't know. But I, don't, I thought that was exaggerated, but I'm not even sure about that. I think it really helped him. And so, and then coupled with, there was a decision, uh, I think, that Ron DeSantis should not trust the mainstream media because they were so prejudiced against him. But it turned out that when he got on after maybe a little stiffness, the guy has a photographic recall and he has a mastery of the issues. And what happens is the first one or two minutes, people notice his voice is a little weird or this and he doesn't do well. And then he does really well. So with Gavin Newsom, there was Newsom, you know, combative, slick back hair, looked like a little mafio, big mafioso, he's strutting around. He has all his one-liners, and then he's an empty suit. And after 20 minutes, Ron DeSantis deconstructed him, told the world that the guy's a complete liar. He destroyed the state. And would you like him to do to America what he did to California? He did the same thing with Haley. She was young, ambitious, vigorous, got a lot of one-liners. He was kind of stolid, matter of fact, and then he just wore her down. And I think people started to realize in, around him that he does very well on media because he knows so much. And so I think they lost an opportunity not using him in the very beginning. He should have been swarming last March a year ago, right? All the meat free media. Donald Trump had that paradigm down perfect. So that was a mistake. And then I feel I, I don't approve of abortion, but I don't think that nine weeks is a viable political position to take. He did that. And that hurt him with, I don't know if it hurt him with the voters, but it surely hurt him with the donor class. And they thought that he would be vulnerable in a campaign. And they were ruse because of the midterm and the midterm i don't know whether it was draining the petroleum reserve or promising money free stuff for students but i have a feeling it was more likely the abortion issue right before the midterms that deflated what could have been a big republican gain and i think that scared the billionaire class and they said oh my god we can't get a good administration because of the abortion and ron just went to the nine weeks, you know, so that hurt him. But I think he did a really wise thing because he was not going to win in New Hampshire and they were going to tag that with him. And he got out. And as soon as he got out, he endorsed Donald Trump. Even Donald Trump said some very unkind things about him. He attacked his wife. He attacked his shoes. He attacked his name. He attacked everything about him. And he was magnanimous. That positions, I think that positioned himself, if not for a cabinet or vice presidency offer, I'm not sure that's going to happen. The 12th Amendment is ambiguous about that. It says that you can't be in the same party, but when you start looking at the language, you can see it may not be as clear as everybody thinks. And more importantly, he'll be in a position in 2028 to be on good terms with Trump and the MAGA people. So it was a, it was a wise move. Mm. to do that. You mean you can't be in the same state and be well, vice president, president? You said the same party, so I was just... Yeah, yeah it's, it's same hard state. to know if the elector, if it refers to maybe the electors in Florida or all the electors. But I'll leave that to attorneys. So I thought that was wise. Now, Haley is in a catch-22 position because for her, first of all, when he dropped out, she she's... This is what was weird about it. She said, if I can just get Donald Trump mano on mano, one-to-one, -one, young, ambitious, attractive, vigorous woman versus 78-year-old tired guy, right? Or I can just get my appeal to independence and swing voters versus his mega-based Neanderthal. I can really win. And no, because she didn't understand that when DeSantis got out, he just swung all of his votes to Trump.
Yeah. And not one not one DeSantis voter will vote for her. So how is she going to do respectable in New Hampshire tonight? I'm speaking on Tuesday here in California about almost noon. And how is uh, she going to do well in her own state? There's only one way she can do it. And that is what she's doing right now. Advertising on left wing media, getting swing uh billionaire class type people who would not give a dime to Donald Trump, but would for her, either because they hate Donald Trump or they think she'd be a weaker candidate. But independents and Democrats, she's relying on to get come out. And that is catch 22. How do you square that circle? So even if that worked and she won New Hampshire, uh, upset tonight, and she won South Carolina and she had what George H.W. Bush called the big mo. There is no momentum because she would lose the general election. She doesn't understand the mega voter. The mega voter is not going to go all down the line with Donald Trump. And then suddenly, when that doesn't work any longer, uh, move over to a candidate that attacked him relentlessly and is again and has a weak record in the past. Not now, but in the past on the border maybe a little bit neocarnation interventionist overseas and has used the feminist card, you know, that she and she used the race card the other day that she grew up brown in the South. She never really mentioned that before. It was always my this is a wonderful country. If my parents can come from India and they can come to a supposedly reactionary racist area and yet I had a wonderful childhood and it was very successful, then this is a great country. But now she's saying, giving the opposite message. I know what it was like being the only brown person. That's like Victor saying, I know what it was like being the only white person in Selma. It was very hard. I went to Eric White's school. There was only eight white kids and there was 245 Mexican kids. I don't think like that. I think, hmm, Louis Carbajal, Frank Contreras, John Trevino, Armando Chavez, my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what she's doing, but... She'd be really smart to go to Donald Trump right after this loss tonight and say, look, I would be a perfect vice president. I'm not endorsing this. So yeah. everybody be clear. But I'm just thinking because you ask what she should, what should she do. Whether it's possible. Yes. She should say, I will bring in swing voters. I am a conservative. And I would be in a position to really help you just like I did at the U.N. And we can win because I will be. I won't be a Kamala Harris. I will be an active partner. And she is much brighter and much more accomplished than Kamala Harris. That's her only hour I want a cabinet position. And then I would endorse it and have a unity ticket. And she wouldn't even lose there because if by chance Donald Trump is tied up and they put him in San Quentin or something similar to it, right? And they put bars on the window and they, <laughs> and they put a soundproof. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. They're capable of anything. But yeah. if they put him in a, a room and they put, what was that thing that uh, Silence of the Lamb, that thing that uh, Anthony Hopkins had over his mouth? The so mask could, on his mouth. Well, it was not even a mask. It was a. It was to keep him from biting people's tongues out. Exactly. So if he has that. Uh, I'm. St <laughs> then she could say, well, I was the next person and I can step up. See what I mean? Yeah. It's not like, I mean, if something happened to Donald Trump and they got their wish, the left, and I don't know, put him like, you know, Gulliver with a bunch of ropes, these little Lilliputians yeah, are exactly. working on him, she still could come back. So she's not going to lose anything. That's what she should do. Yeah. Unite the party. Yeah. And then Donald Trump would do what he did to uh, Ron DeSantis. He said, and I want to thank Ron DeSantis. <laughs> and he looked and he twinkled in his eye. I'm not saying sanctimonious. <laughs> and it was one of the weird things. It was basically the subtext was, I'm not going to make fun of his cancer stricken wife, which I thought was really bad. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to mention that I made fun of his boots and he walked with pads in them. I'm not. And he, he's my buddy. And Ron DeSantis was very magnanimous, I thought. He yeah. did the only way, he played the card the way, the only way it could be played. And he can come out, he's not damaged at all. Yeah. And Donald Trump, I'm just thinking about this because I don't endorse it either, but 
he'll just come out and talk to his base and say, you know, whatever he needs to say, he just needs to construct an argument that makes it plausible of why you would have a Nikki Haley as a vice president. Although DeSantis would probably be a better one for him, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think I think uh, it's going to be very difficult to win because he was spent, what, three and a half billion to a billion in 2020. I would say it's going to be five billion to a billion or two. Yeah. I think they'll be, they'll outspend, they'll outraise him four to one. We have a little advantage in that people have seen their modus operandi in 2020 and how the, the ballot laws were changed. And there are grassroots, mostly led by brilliant women like Cleta Mitchell. And they are trying to activate and they are trying to be warn everybody, hey, watch out. The, the mail-in ballot error rate has dropped from 4 or 5% to 0.3 or 0.4. So that's a magnitude of 10. Yeah. And so be careful. So it's kind of like everybody knows what's going to happen. They know that if Biden, if he's still around, will campaign from the basement. They'll know they'll have tons of money. They will run every single ad they can. They will outsource the campaign to these four prosecutors. They will outsource it to secretary of states and courts and all of the swing states to get him off the ballot. We know what's going to happen. Yeah. And you just have to persevere. And he's got one great argument, Trump does. I was president for four years. And before COVID hit, you'll go back and look at December of 2019 or January of 2000. It, everything was finally solved. And then more importantly, look at Joe Biden. This has been an utter disaster. I know the Supreme, I know that the stock market is up. I know that interest rates are not rising. I know that unemployment was low. But given that prices have never gone down and they are 20 to 30 percent higher than when Joe Biden took office on cars, on rent, on medical things, on bananas, on milk, on you can't even buy meat anymore. Mm. I went and bought just for the heck of it. I went to a local supermarket and went to the old fashioned meat section where you actually get it wrapped in paper, right? A big, thick ribeye. I thought, I haven't had a good steak in three years. It was about, I don't know what it was. It was $60. And it was delicious. But I felt guilty. I've never bought one since. (laughs) It's just outrageous. Yeah, it is. Yeah, really. So that's that's that. The last thing that's bothering me in this campaign season is that I would while watching Trump win by fifty percent his primary in Iowa, I was thinking, yes, but how many of those how much do, of the voting population does that represent? And I came across the statistic because when you think to the national campaign and November Iowa really meant for Trump 3.7% of registered voters in Iowa and only 2% of the actual voting population. Don't so that's go not very down high. That, don't go down that, that rat hole. What is, what's the rat hole? That's, that's an ancient <laughs> tick. Mim. Oh, well, there's a national election. George H.W. Bush only got 49.8%. There was only 50% turnout. When you do the math, only one in three. It's not, it's the polls that matter, not just one, but the people who voted for Donald Trump, the small percentage that you met, that you mentioned, yes. pretty much when you looked at what people were polled who were not intending to vote, they have all kinds of polls. They have polls of just everybody. They have registered voters. They have people who intend to vote. They were pretty much the same. So what I'm saying is if everybody in, who was an adult who was eligible had, you know, it was 90 degrees outside and they all went to vote, it wouldn't have been any different. It would not have been any different. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, well, let's stop right there and take a break and then come back to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court ruling for the Fed against the state of Texas. Stay with us and we'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back. So, Victor, this is very interesting that the Supreme Court ruled um, on the side of the federal government that has the right to cut the Texas state razor wire that they're putting at the border to let illegal immigrants in. I was wondering if you had thoughts on that. That seems crazy to me. I do have thoughts on that. So let me get this straight. The Supreme Court said to the state of Texas, yes, the federal government has abdicated its duty to enforce the borders of the United States. You as a state share a national border. That is your border as well as a federal border. The federal government has broken the law essentially by not honoring its own statutes. You took an initiative to help the federal government enforce what it should be doing. We've, we've ruled that illegal. Can't do it. We not only ruled it illegal, we did it with two Trump, one Trump-supported uh, appointed judge, Comey Barrett, and then, of course, you know who, Chief Justice Roberts. And so we had four conservatives, and then the left doesn't do these things. You see what I'm saying? Kagan doesn't say, oh, my God, I know I'm a, an Obama judge, but this is terrible that the federal government abdicated and forced the state to do it. So maybe it's states' rights in a weird way. It's not nullification. It's amplification. And therefore, I'm going to vote with Texas. They don't do that. They, they have solidarity. It's straight ticket. It's only we, our side, does it. And then you have to juxtapose that to, what, 550, 550 local and state, what we call sanctuary city jurisdictions. We don't even say city anymore because they're whole states, they're counties, they're towns. And in those jurisdictions, they say the federal government's immigration law does not apply here. We're better. We're nullification. We're South Carolina, 1832 and 3. We're South Carolina, 1859. We're going to nullify federal law and make state law preeminent. And guess what? They do it. Nobody says that's wrong. No court says that's wrong. And somebody can say, well, Victor, you're inconsistent because you're standing for states' rights for Texas, but you're not standing for states' rights for sanctuary cities. No, I'm not. I'm very consistent. The, the rule is that a state has a right to force, enforce the federal law when the federal government by design will not fulfill its constitutional duties. And so Texas is trying to follow the law. Los Angeles and San Francisco are trying to deliberately break the federal law. In the case of Texas, the federal law is not complying. They're trying to resist. They are nullifying their own laws. In the case of San Francisco and Los Angeles and 550 cities like them, the federal government's trying to enforce the law. ICE is trying to say, look, you got a felon who just killed somebody and he's illegal. Give him to us because he broke the law, immigration law, and we'll handle him. Oh, no, he's a victim. So there's the difference. It's very consistent. The, the consistent principle is when a state is in danger and it is trying to force an existing federal law, enforce it and follow it, and the federal government is renegade and won't, it should be allowed to enforce the existing law. And when a state is trying to break an existing law over the objections of federal authorities who are trying to enforce it, then it should not be able to do it. Yeah. 
I'm really disappointed in the, the Supreme Court. I really am. I know that's not the end of the story, but it's just, uh, I don't think they can, I don't see how they can't see that. Yeah, it seems pretty obvious. Huh? Well, let's turn then to Fanny Willis. Um, you know, I was her, just thinking oh, of, oh, no, go ahead. I was just thinking that, uh, that, and I've mentioned this before in a podcast, you can see the where the Sanctuary Cities is getting to weird positions because there are a lot of conservative communities that would love to say, take your federal handgun registration and stick it. We're not going to follow. So in our little town in Utah or Wyoming, you want to go get a Glock, just go in there and buy it and walk out with it and violate federal gun registration law. Or, you know, you're... You're out here in California, in rural California, and you're trying to build a shed, and you find some, I don't know, three-toed white rat. It's on the endangered species, and there's a, like five little rats in a hole. And you just say, bulldoze the son of a bitch. I don't care. We're nullifying that federal law. You can see where it's going to go. Yeah. And they don't do that. The left will not do that. They will say, you are a renegade. You are a Southern nullificationist. You have to follow federal law. You don't can't decide as a state jurisdiction. Your little town doesn't have to you know, register guns. And then you say to them, and I've had this conversation. That's why I brought it up. And you say, well, you nullify federal law all the time. You just don't. You just let people who commit crimes into your jurisdiction. You won't give them the federal immigration. That's different. It's for humanitarian purposes. So that's where we have the problem. Yeah. And their idea of humanitarian yeah. is suspicious. Is let a citizen be killed if it's, yeah. it's not a pressing problem, as we saw with the St- Kate Stanley. Yeah. Stein. Well, so turning to Fannie Willis, uh, just recently the um, court has allowed, or what is it called, un, un, unclassified her... Um, declassified, declassified, released it on seal, I think is a legal term. Oh, okay. They've unsealed Nathan Wade, her paramour's <laughs> divorce records. So we're going to find out what Fannie had to do with all that. I was wondering your thoughts on that. Well, we will find out if we had a media, but you will have all sorts of media stories. They've already appeared. This is uh, the subtext of this right-wing attack is an attack on a powerful, proud black woman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it will be pretty embarrassing because uh, there are statutes that prohibit this because what we're basically talking about is she hired her paramour, who she was sleeping with, to be a special prosecutor and classified him at a pay rank that was higher than another prosecutor that had extensive criminal and felony prosecutorial experience. This guy had never prosecuted one felony or one um, racketeering case. None. I don't think he'd even ever prosecuted any criminal, even a misdemeanor criminal case. Okay. So why did she pay him so much? And then she was an elect. She was a direct beneficiary of that largesse at the taxpayer's largesse because she junketed with him everywhere. And then she... She had sealed the, she and the, the people she knows sealed the divorce record. And now she's even challenging the divorce record to keep it out. Why would she do that? Mm. It's none of her business, right? Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. And so, <laughs> you know, it's, she knows what she did. She, she knows what she did. She just got a lot of attention. So she campaigned on the idea that Donald Trump was, interfering with an election. He was a denialist, and he made a phone call to the register. I don't see it. It's any different than a fellow Georgian, good friend of Fannie Willis, Stacey Abrams, just claiming from the day the count the county was finished, I won. They robbed the election. She complained to everybody. She asked. For, she she did everything. She toured the country. She went out to Silicon Valley. She went to Manhattan. She made all kinds of fundraising efforts. She introduced herself as a real governor of Georgia. That was all election denialists, and she tried to do all she could do to overturn. Nobody ever said, did you call somebody in the Georgia government? Stacy? if you did, that's a felony. So it's, I, when I say it's a joke, 
that's what Trump says is a joke, but jokes can be very deadly. Yeah. They can be lethal. Just because they're a joke and they're a tra travesty of justice doesn't mean the left is going to say, hmm, I'm ashamed that I did that. They're going to say, I, can, I, can, I like it better. We took a travesty and turned it into a Trump-destroying gambit. That's how they look at it. Never underestimate them. Yeah, that's a sad statement, but true. Well, let's look at other things about the West, at our universities. I know that Harvard has created an anti-Semitic committee, and they've picked Derek Pinsler to head it. But he, I mean, not that you necessarily have to be Jewish, but it would seem natural to have somebody Jewish. Is he? But I believe he's not Jewish. Is that true? Well, he, he's Jewish. He's a Jewish history professor at Harvard. And he oh, was on something he was... called the Presidential Task Force on Combating Anti-Semitism. And what was that about? That was in response to former President Claudine Gay's meltdown, where she either could not or would not say that Harvard would not allow genocidal speech directed at Jews. Because she says she's a free speech advocate. And we know she's not because she's gone after every type of professor or student who said, said anything in her considered opinion that was insensitive to blacks, Latinos, trans, gays, women. In other words, Colin, Claudine Gay told Congress, if you decipher her enigmatic response, you can say anything you want about Jews at Harvard. I don't give a damn. But you don't say one blank word about other groups. That was what it was all about. So they appointed the task force, and so they thought they were going to put a Jewish history. But the problem is that just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're not anti-Israel or not anti-Jewish because you're an academic, and academics are by nature timid, and they're scared, and they go with the majority. It's like Heidegger, you know. I won't need to get into Heidegger, but my point is that Derek Pensler has had a long career, that he has called Israel an apartheid state. I think he said it was a settler. That's a new word now, settler nation. He's uh, downplayed anti-Semitism at Harvard. And of course, Harvard puts him on the anti-Semitism committee. And then it's kind of like Stanford. So Stanford beat them to the punch because they were a little earlier because they had the, the lecture, remember, that <laughs> told the Jews in his class to go to one side of the room and leave their property on the other as if they were you know, refugees in Gaza. And by the way, there's a petition now to bring him back. He was uh, Kaepernick's uh, mentor. But that guy was named, I think his name was Kelman, and he had the same record of kind of trashing Israel and saying anti-Semitism wasn't that big of a deal, or at least that was alleged. And he resigned from the Stanford uh, anti-Semitic on my campus. And then remember, there was an earlier anti-Semitism committee at Harvard, and D David Wolpe, whom I've met as a great guy, he's a rabbi, he quit for the opposite reasons, because he felt that it was just, it was just useless to be on the committee because it was so stacked. So what are we going to sum up the Stanford experience, the two Harvard anti-Semitism? Can they find one person on a contemporary campus who can be trusted to be disinterested and really look for anti-Semitism? You know what it reminds me is Genesis 20, what was it? Genesis uh, 18, 24 or something, the famous Lot story. <laughs> no, with Sodom I've and never Gomorrah. heard. Yeah. Oh, I was raised Catholic. They would never tell us oh, about this my story. My tell me, tell me. <laughs> was a Methodist, and she read it to me a lot. Well, and I'm just Sodom and Gomorrah is so full of sodomy and like uh, excesses that God wants to destroy the whole thing. Get that abomination. And Lot is and his family are the noble people that don't indulge. And Lot is a good man, so he says. Don't do that. And he said, well, you can find me 50 men. And then it's sort of a parable on Middle East negotiation. He said, ah, if you do 50, how about 40? God said, okay, 40. He said, I want 30. Just <laughs> In other words, this is such an awful place. I want 30 people that could possibly get on an anti-Semitic committee. And yeah. God says, uh, okay. And then he says, I don't think I could find 30 good men. I don't think I could find 30 people on, a US, on an elite campus that would be fair to Israel. How about 20? 
<laughs> and then he says, okay. And then he says, you know, God, I, my last and final offer, just let me get 10 people. And of course, he can't get 10. So when the two angels come in to, I guess, escort him out, right, and his family, <laughs> the Sodomites try to attack the angels and sexually assault them. I guess they were turned on by their wings or something. But my point is, it's a parable. And then, of course, we have that sad Orpheus-like Eurydice movement. When they're going back, he's not supposed to look back. And uh, she does and is turned into salt. And then God brings fire and brimstone and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, but not sodomy. Uh, but my point is this, that it's very, apparently it is very, very hard on an elite Harvard-Stanford campus to get a committee to investigate anti-Semitism on campus, even if you pick a Jewish professor. And even if you pick a Jewish professor of Jewish studies, because if you're on that committee and you tell the truth and you see that Jewish students are systematically uh, ostracized, canceled culture, harassed, then you point that out, what happens to you? You're in big trouble, you're persona non grata. If you wanna get on the committee to investigate Islamophobia, which is not very much, because apparently most of the protests on campus, they harass Jews, they chase them into the libraries, they push them, tear down posters. But if you were on that committee, that would be a career enhancer. So they'll find plenty of people on the Islamophobia committee. And um, most of them will be <laughs> people who do not like Israel and do not like Jews. So that's what the, the parable is on that. They can't, I mean, if Stanford can't find, can't make a committee without getting somebody on that has a long history of, uh, I would call, I don't say anti-Semitism because they're Jewish, but anti-Israelism and, and anti, uh, positions that the Jewish community overwhelmingly on that campus don't trust. And you still put them on the, who, then you're back to juvenile, Quis custodia, custodias. Who's going to police the police? Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, academic timidity, et cetera, and their general lack of character quite often, they also ask for raises all the time. And I understand that the CSU in your own area, the faculty are asking for a 12% cost of yeah. living increase, and they're going to shut down the university if they That's don't do it. That's all CSU. CSU, remember, the California State University System is the largest university system in the world. And I was a member of it for almost 21 years. And it has one of the most powerful um, the California Faculty Association is one of the most powerful unions there are. And of course, you know, I, I'm empathetic about inflation and I get my 3% cost of living at the Hoover Institution. But the idea that I would ask for 12% and they're asking for 12%, of course, during what? A time when the state of California is over $60 billion in the hole. And who is going to have to pay for that if there's 60 billion in the whole? It's the students. And of course, the students are out there on, the, on behalf of the faculty for the most part, even though they don't quite get it, that they paid. When this last came up, I was a faculty member. When they threatened to strike, I didn't strike. And I told my students, this is how much there is tuition. These are your 15 units, and this is how many dollars you pay per hour of instruction, right? Don't count grading papers and stuff. And it was a lot. And once you told them, you know, you're, you paid two or $300 for this hour and the guy didn't show up, and it's probably a lot more now, it's pretty bad to do that because these students don't have money. And the idea that the faculty is just going to walk out. And I think they settled this morning. I think they got 5% now and then 5% um, next, next in six months. They got, they got it, and so they got ten percent, and then they got all their what they you know what they usually want lactation rooms and transgendered bathrooms and <laughs> the whole left wing caboodle. But somebody has to pay for it, and they're striking in a state, as I said, that not only has a sixty, it'll probably be up more closer to seventy billion, but it has a thirteen point three income tax rate, the highest in the country. It has the highest gas taxes in the country. 
and it has uh, it's about number six in sales taxes. And it, while it doesn't have a high property tax rate necessarily, it has a huge, hugely high a property assessment. So it ranks up there with property taxes. And so it's just another commentary that here we have the most taxes. And I taught there, I can tell you the CSU is a good university. It, it offers especially things that I didn't teach that I ended up really supporting more than maybe the humanities, nursing, engineering, business, agriculture, a lot of good things. And when I was there, the infrastructure was not very good. Bathrooms were not up to par, except when there's a measure E in Fresno, as we've talked about, to tax everybody one quarter cent um, to... Um, to improve the infrastructure of Cal State Fresno because the CSU system has not done it, which means this. The CSU system is tens of billions of dollars behind in retrofitting their facilities and building new ones to accommodate, accommodate rapid growth. And in that deficit, the faculty want a, wanted a 12% raise right away. So they got their two, they got a 5% and then another 5%. And uh, that means the students are going to have to pay more. We're going to have a bigger deficit and nobody's going to look at the restrooms or the, the, the mold on the ceilings. You know, I, I taught at the lab, call it the lab school, an old lab school at Fresno State. I'd come in every morning and look at the acoustical tile. It was all black in the corner where it leaked with mold. I'd go to the bathroom. It was just one toilet and sink. And there would be homeless people from Shaw Avenue that would come in there. One time I went in there, I called my colleague, Bruce Thornton. He was teaching there, and there was a guy who had uh, locked the door with clothes under the door so he couldn't open it. And he was using the toilet to wash his clothes. And he was stark naked. I, I pushed it in the door open, and he was sitting on the sink picking clothes and pushing them up and down on the toilet. And that's that's was kind of what it was like. Well, with that image of our CSU, our local university, let's go ahead and take a break and we'll come <laughs> back to talk about the Middle East. Stay with us and we'll be back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back. You can find Victor at Twitter. His Handle is at VD Hansen, and he also has a page on Facebook called Hansen's Morning Cup. So come join us there on either of those pages. Well, Victor, the Middle East, a lot going on. The United States is still dealing with the Houthis, and I, I can't figure out whether they're Policy is appeasement or deterrence. But I just wanted to add before you go in to talk about this, um, that Israel, the Israeli Defense Force has had its worst day of killing in the last couple of days. And you they had losses 24 losses. losses yes. Yeah, 24 killed. So that's two things that are going on. I was wondering what your thoughts were. What, what is this policy the U.S. is um, following? Because I was listening to Blinken. I couldn't make him out. Like, what, he, what, what, what was he really trying to say that the United States was willing to do to stop all the craziness in the Red Sea and the, the whole issue of Iran, period? Well, very quickly, the Israelis were trying to demolish a headquarters or a Hamas building, and they had put explosives for dem demolition. And then the Hamas people apparently saw that and sent a rocket in and blew up the people who were trying to blow up the building. So it collapsed on them. Oh, got it. So it was not something that happens a lot. It was terrible. So what in the larger sense of what's going on right now, because we have the only chips that are going in the Red Sea are, are Chinese and Russian, right? They get they get waved on by the Houthis. So what what is going on with this administration? Very quickly, they came into power thinking that everything Donald Trump touched was wrong. They looked at the Middle East 
Jake Sullivan said, you know what? My portfolio is calm. I don't even have to look at it. Everything was going great. The Abrams Accord were working. And what did they do? They started attacking Saudi Arabia and said, you know, it's all as illiberal. They, they ostracized. They just stopped the Abrams Accords cold. And then they said, well, we're going to give money to Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, $700 million. And they propped up the UN again, which was worthless. And then they said to the Houthis, did Donald Trump call you people global terrorists and cut off your financial resources? Well, that was mean. That orange man, we're going to let you get back and get money again. And then they said to Iran, did Donald Trump kill your General Soleimani? And he sanctioned you and you lost 50, 60, 70 billion dollars. That was mean. And you'll like us now because we want to beg you to get back in the Iran deal. And would you please sell all the oil you want to Russia and China? And um, you'll get billions of dollars. And if you want to give it the money to Hezbollah, they have some rockets. And we've been working with Hezbollah on oil uh, concessions in the Mediterranean. We've kind of favored them over the Israelis. And so that was what their attitude was. Everybody likes the United States. Everything is calm. And then all of a sudden, October 7th, and they said to themselves, oh, my God. All of that magnanimity that we showed Iran and all of the kindness we showed the Houthis and all the forbearance we showed Hezbollah and all the money we gave, gave Hamas, they looked at this as weakness to be exploited. Why? Uh-oh. Now there could be a regional war. So you know what? If we didn't appease enough, we've got to appease more. So we're going to tell Iran, you know, don't do that. We know what you're doing. You've attacked us 130 times at our bases. And maybe you can go 150 or 160. But at some point, we're going to get angry. And we've told the Houthis, we've struck back. I know you're still doing it. It hasn't had no effect on your ability to stop maritime commerce in the Red Sea. But please don't. And we've told Hamas, don't get too angry at us. You, After all, you got a little out of hand on October 7th. We didn't quite you know, know what you were going to do. And now the Israelis got kind of mad, but we'll, we'll restrain them so they don't liquidate you. And then we told Turkey and Qatar, uh, we don't like what you're doing, harboring Iranians, helping them finance. But can you kind of knock it off? And then we said to Hezbollah, you better not send too many rockets. Just send it, keep it down to about 10 or 15 a day, but not too many. And that's where we are. Yeah. And we, we cannot protect our friends. We do not scare our enemies and we cannot win over neutrals. So Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the Gulf monarchy said, no, nah, I'm not going to get involved with you guys on the Abrams Accords. I know you tried to claim it as your own, but you're, you're too unreliable. And Egypt and Jordan are saying, you crazy? You think we're going to come out? And we wanted you to liquidate Hamas and get rid of it. We'd like you to get rid of Hezbollah. But why would we come out and say that when you're not going to do it? You'd cut, us, cut our legs out from under us. So we're not going to ally with you until we can rely on you. And I don't think we can rely on this. And that's the message that's going on. So yeah. then there's one final tessera to this sad mosaic and that is we're in election year 2024 and the last thing joe biden wants is a jimmy carter hostage situation humiliation situation that makes us look weaker than we are and we're right on the verge of a 1939 blow up where iran if iran keeps doing it and the, israel goes after iran and then china and the whole thing could blow up and that's what Joe Biden is terrified of, because it all is a result of his weakness. And therefore, they're just trying to talk their way out of it till election time. Yeah. Well, I was just reading in the American Spectator, a article by James McGee, and he writes that our inconvenient truth is this, quote, we are at war with the Iranian regime, unquote. And he says, we've got to disabuse ourselves that the war is against the Iranian people. It's not. They're, it's against their theocrats. It isn't a war of choice because this is a very important region to world peace. And that finally, um, it's not confined to the Middle East and Israel. It is 
everywhere as we saw with the October 7th protests. And I was wondering if you had thoughts. Are we at war with Iran, Victor? We are not at war with Iran. Iran is at war with us. So Iran is sending ships daily into Yemen to give them rockets. And they had an Iranian spy ship and they have told Yemen that we want you to put pressure on the Jewish state from the south to weaken Israel. So we want to shut down their port at a lot. That's what started the 67 war. The Egyptians shut down. You couldn't get there. So that's what we want you to do. No shipping goes into Israel. And the rest of the world, the Western world, will pay a price as well for their support of Israel. That's number one. So keep sending those missiles. Then they go to Hamas and they say, we're going to train you. We're going to give you the weaponry. We've got some nice Afghan weapons we bought from the Taliban. They're pretty good American. And we want you and your October 7th to go in there and kill as many Jews as you can inside Israel. But we're not going to say that we told you. It's not Our fingerprints are not going to be on it. But you, we're going to train you in Iran. And we're going to train you in Syria, etc. Then they told Hezbollah, we're getting close to the 150,000 rocket stage where you have a depot of 150,000 rockets and you can overwhelm, swarm all of the so-called Iron Dome, Patriot missile, et cetera, et cetera, that they have. And they know that. So that is a deterrent. And we want you, the moment Hamas goes in to kill Jews, we've got the, the Yemenis and the Houthis sending rockets into the Red Sea. And then we'll have Hezbollah jump in with 150 and we'll sit back and watch the whole thing. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. And they look at Biden and they say, we may or may not, maybe sort of, kind of, maybe have enough fissionable material for maybe two or three bombs next month, but maybe we already have one. And this is what we're going to do. And, you know, the sad thing is that anytime anybody has stood up to Iran, Remember uh, Ronald Reagan, they were starting to attack American ships in the Persian Gulf, and he had something called Operation Crane Mantis. <laughs> nice name. And they sunk, I mean, they, they sank a, sunk a, a big ship, an Iranian frigate, and they, and they damaged another one. I think they lost a couple, but they were, they were just obliterating all these little harassing boats. And then they just said, they just sent a message uh, to Khomeini, and they said, what do you want to do? They said, no, can we stop? We won't do it anymore. We'll just stop. And they did. They did. And they will stop if you tell them that. All you have to do is saying, we're going to sanction you right now. And if you do it next week, we're going to embargo and shut down your ports and you're not going to be able to send anything out. And if you do it the third week, we're going to take out your naval base. If you do it the fourth week, we're going to take out all of your military base. If you do it the fifth week, you're going to take out your just graduated ex escalation with them making the choice of where they want to go. Yeah. And that would stop. And you know what? It would put pressure on the regime. Remember when Obama came in, they had something called the Green Movement of 2009? He had a million Iranians out in the streets protesting. He did not say one word of encouragement for 11 days. You know why he didn't? Because he was favoring the theocracy. He thought that the Democrats in the street were kind of neocon, pro-American stooges. And he had this vision of Tehran, Damascus, Beirut, Gaza City, one big crescent from Tehran all the way to the Mediterranean of anti-Israel, anti-moderate Arab, anti-Gulf monarchy, uh, power blocks, creative tension in which we can adjudicate. That's what the whole idea was. Israel doesn't want to listen to us? Okay, Shia Crescent, throw some rockets at them. Shia Crescent, get a little bit too hand? Okay, Saudis and Israel will give you a... That's how they thought they could be the puppeteer. What a mm -hmm. sick idea it was. That sure was. Well, Victor, we're at the end of our show, and I do have some comments from Apple Podcast for you. Uh, the first one is a, a thank you comment, and it's titled Absolute Truth. And, he, of course, they gave you five stars. Uh, I think it's a she says, 
Thank you for providing a clear discussion of the topics from the useless elite college system to the horrible October 7th massacre by satanic Hamas. I really appreciate the breadth and depth of your discussion, VDH. You are the voice of reason. That racist lecturer from Stanford should never be allowed to access, access to any young minds. Not sure how to stop this Marxist and anti Semitic madness. <laughs> That's a good. I like the characterizations of people in that one. Another um, viewer said, "What about the Napoleon review?" So they're waiting for you to view. The I want to watch it. Yeah. I uh, uh, I have highest regards for Andrew Roberts, a good friend of mine, and I reviewed his Napoleon book, which was fascinating. It was based on uh, previously unpublished correspondence with Napoleon and his grandees. And uh, Andrew didn't like it, Ridley Scott's movie. Yeah. Like it's almost three hours long. So I'm looking forward to go for it. It was going to play at the local Selma Theater, and I was all ready to go. I was only there for a week, mm. and I didn't get around to it. And I don't want to go to Fresno and watch it. I don't go to theaters anymore, kind of a principle, because I can't stand Hollywood. But I really am a big admirer of Ridley Scott. I like him a lot. I liked his brother, Tony Scott. Remember True Romance he directed. He did Man on Fire. He, he was a really brilliant uh, director, Tony. So was Ridley. And uh, so I'm going to watch it and I'll give a full appraisal. In the meantime, if you want to go to the Times Literary Supplement and go back in the archives, you can see I wrote a long review of Andrew's book. Yeah. Napoleon. It was called Napoleon. I think in Europe they had it. They, they retitled it Napoleon the Great. I'm not a big fan of Napoleon, but... Andrew was more balanced and said that he was kind of a precursor of some needed re populist reforms in Europe. Yeah. The Napoleonic Code. Uh, he tried to create a meritocratic bureaucracy. Marshals of France, were, there were some meritocratic criteria that made his military more lethal than the adversaries. Yeah. It wasn't an aristocracy of incompetence. But he was pretty ruthless, you know. Remember, he took 600,000 men into Russia, and I think 150 came out. And when he was, every, they were all freezing, they got the carriage, and they said, Mon empire, it's time to go. And he said, my army would not want their emperor to freeze. <laughs> and he did the same thing in Egypt when he left people starving. Um, shouldn't say starving, but struck with typhus and dying by the thousands. He left them. And if you don't mind, I have one, and I'm just going to read the end because they give themselves away. They they were critical of you, and I don't know how they can be. They didn't really say much. But don't worry, at I, the get very, that. I get that at the airport. I get that whenever yeah. I go anywhere. Their very last line was this. There's clearly a market for this tripe, is what they're calling it, among a certain low information portion of the American electorate. Sad. <laughs> Oh, they gave themselves away low information. The, the assumption know, of their own brilliance is just you know, so... That's very funny because uh, <laughs> they said that about... Not that I'm comparing myself to Rush, but they said that about Rush's viewers. And they said that about a lot of conservative people. And then they actually had... I think it was the Shorenstein Center, mm -hmm. but it was a media communication uh, group, institute, whatever term we... And they... They uh, surveyed listeners to talk radio, which is always the the hobby horse of the the left. They can't stand it, and they found out that the average conservative person who listened was much better informed on the issues than was the left. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that our audience that listens to us, I would uh, take the people who are listening to Rachel Maddow any day. I take this audience that knows more. Yeah. And they don't. They can't accept that. No, they just can't accept it. And uh, I'm just struck in my adult life how many times I have had a conversation with a person with letters after their name: J.D., M.A., B.A., Ph.D., M.B.A. You name it. M.D. And on basic questions of politics and contemporary affairs. And they have no idea what you're talking about. And yeah. by the same time, 
I will go into the local electric motor shop or I'll go to a pump shop or I'll go talk to a mechanic. Or a car salesman. A car salesman. I'm just talking about our friend Brian the other day. <laughs> and they will, with a staccato, repetitive, automatic machine gun like question, da, 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 what do you think about this? And how about this? And this, this, this. And they bring up things I'm not aware of. And that's because they live in the real world. Yeah. And they have to deal with the real consequences of political decisions. They don't have tenure. They don't have summers off. They don't have a lot of money. They don't see the world as a birthright for the income of theirs. They look at the world as a very dangerous place and unsettled and unpredictable. And so I take it with a grain of salt when people write and attack our audience. Yeah, exactly. And, and they, I haven't asked you, but I haven't looked at it. Listeners, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I would <laughs> bet you that on the angry reader scale, we usually have it. There has to be at least some capital letters. Yeah, I think he did have a capital oh, letter. Oh, yeah. Capital. Look at it. <laughs> Let me have a look. There's, oh, no. no sorry. It was just your VDH. <laughs> there's, there's no exclamation points? Uh, uh, no. Is didn't. there any misspelled cra crappy grammar and misspelled words? No, but... How about ad hominem, you're an idiot, you're this, you're SH... No, because that's this is a public forum, so we... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's not a letter addressed to me. <laughs> addressed no, to so you, I though. get a second chance. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's a comment. No, but it is... He does say what you say is repetitive, and then he uses the word low information, which is the most repeated thing in all of left lingo. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know that there's a difference between the level of commentary and the sense of explicitness. Yeah. I didn't know you were mixing letters or not. No. Sorry. I do the angry readers. We have somebody that collates them and sends them to me. And, and I, try, I have a scale. I have certain points are given for the usual all capital letters, misspelled words, grammar. The word F gets you a high rating. S-H-I gets you a high rating. And ellipses, wrong stuff. Yeah. Yep. Well, Victor, thank you for the um, morning, afternoon, night uh, commentary on the news this week. And thanks to our listeners for staying with us. We really appreciate you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen. We're signing off.